You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so we've been in this text uh, for about a month. We just uh, if you're new with us, we're in 1 Corinthians, kind of chipping our way uh, at it, and we are, we've probably got six months in this thing. So uh, here we are in coming out of month one, and so let me do just kind of a quick recap for us so we can orient ourselves and kind of know where we are in the text. Uh, chapter one um, uh, deals with this. It's dealing with pride and arrogance in the church. That's what's happening in the life uh, of the church in Corinth. There's kind of preacher competitions going on. Each guy is grabbing his guy and he's saying, my guy's better than your guy. My, guy, my dad could beat up your dad, that whole thing. That's, that's what's happening in uh, the church. Everybody was kind of looking for the fanciest, wisest looking, most um, impressive sounding philosophical rhetoric. And they were going, oh, that's, that's awesome. I love that. I'm going to hold on to that. Anybody who does that. And, and, and then Paul comes on the scene with the, the gospel. And, and Paul shows up and sort of disrupts all of their ways of thinking about how they value things by going, hey, do you, do you want to know what Christianity's fancy message is? You want to know what we, we're bringing to the table? Here's what we're bringing to the table. Uh, the Savior of the world, dead on a cross. That's what I got to offer you. And, and as soon as I say that, Corinthian church, I know that sounds just bananas to you because that is none of the things that you value. You value strength and you value wisdom and, and what this looks like is foolishness. It looks like folly and it looks like weakness. But if you have eyes to see it, you'll see that it's actually the wisdom of God and the strength of God. It's actually everything that your heart could want if your heart could want it. So that's 1 Corinthians 1. Then we dealt with uh, 1 Corinthians 2. In chapter 2, basically here's what's happening there. Uh, Paul's going, hey, this news about Christ crucified is so mind-blowing that it actually takes someone else's mind for you to understand it. That's what, that's what chapter 2 is. You need a different mind if you, you want to actually appreciate and treasure and apply this news. Oh, sure, you could understand the details of it, but you actually need God to act on you and act in you so that you can treasure this news of Christ crucified. And that's why he ends chapter 2 with uh, that phrase, but we have the mind of Christ. He's telling them, hey, good news. God has actually given you the mind to understand, appreciate, treasure, and apply the truth of the cross to you. He's given you that mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. And now we hear, uh, we're in chapter three now. So we're caught up, chapter three, and Paul could have left it all alone and moved on to all the 90 other things he's going to tackle in the book, but he doesn't because he's Paul. And so he's going to circle back around. And he's going to deal with this whole thing again. And if you want to think about it like this, chapter one, the content of it doesn't really end. He, he doesn't end dealing with it until like the end of chapter three into chapter four. So this whole kind of front half of the book is really circling the wagons around this one idea, this issue of pride and arrogance in the life of the church. He's dealing with this. And uh, as he's circling back, here's the message of chapter three. You, guys, you may have the mind of Christ, but it sure doesn't look like you're using it. That's chapter three. And we can all go home because that's what he's doing here. That's, that's uh, the point. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Here's what he's saying. Guys, I love you, but how do I say this? You're acting like a bunch of babies. That's what he's saying. It, it, in this, but he just, this guy doesn't pull any punches. You remember chapter one, he's like, hey, not many of you were wise. 
Now, many of you were strong. You guys were kind of lame-o, and God saved you. That's what, and, and now chapter three, he's going like, and you're acting like little kids. And I love you, but it's true. By the way, just a side note, can, can you love somebody deeply and say a hard thing to them? Yes. In fact, in many ways, that, that is the loving thing that needs to happen so many times. And, and, and Paul is willing to do it. He's willing to say, hey, I love you like crazy, so I got to tell you the truth. The, the mind that Christ has given you, that new mind, you have it, but man, it sure doesn't look like you're using it. You're acting like children. He, he says you're acting like infants in Christ, like a bunch of babies. Now, why, now why would Paul say this? In what way are they acting like infants? Well, he answers the question in verse three and four. For you, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Do you hear it? It's all the language of chapter one. He's going back to that whole thing where in chapter one, he says there's quarreling among you. In this chapter, he calls it jealousy and strife. What's happening in the church at Corinth is they're forming cliques around certain gifted people so that they could be seen as important as well. I partner up with this guy so I can have value, so I can, by association, be thought of as important and made much of. It's arrogance, it's pride. And he's saying, this thing that you're doing, it's spiritually immature. It's, it's acting like babies act this way. So he's saying, babies act like this. And if you think about it, that's true. Think about a baby for a moment. I'm in baby world right now. We got a four month old, it's, it's baby town where, where I'm at, right? How, wh what are babies like? They are, they're little people who can't see the bigger picture. That's really, that's one way to talk about what a baby is, right? They, they're just so myopic and so nearsighted and like, like literally, like scientifically nearsighted. Like a baby cannot, I, I've researched this. They can't see past about eight to 12 inches in front of their face. So everything else outside of about a foot is, uh, is blurry and smeary images. It's only when you get right here that they can even interact with you, right? And, and that's, that's how a baby's eyes work. And, and that's how a baby's mind works too, by the way. Did you know that um, until a, a baby is about eight months old, uh, it is literally out of sight, out of mind. If you're not with that baby, that baby doesn't know you exist. So. Moms, next time you're on a date with dad and you're wondering, does my newborn miss me at home with a babysitter? The answer is, no, he doesn't. No. <laughs> doesn't, even, doesn't even know you're alive right now. So you just eat your spaghetti and have a good time. Because that's, uh, he, he doesn't know. It's out of sight, out of mind. But you see, this is what makes children so childish. They can't see the big picture. Everything's just right here. And this is our problem too, right? I mean, we, what is the cause of strife in your life and jealousy and infighting and competition and, and, and envy and, and selfishness and pride? What is it? It, it? Here's one way to talk about it. It's us being unable to see the big thing that God is up to. It's just all right here. It's just all, it's all so small. Our world gets so small and it becomes all about us. All I can see is me. That's one way to talk about what sin is. It's just me bent, like one of the um, old reformers talked about, it's sin is man bent in on himself. It's just me looking at me in my own little world here. And that's what Paul is dealing with. You care about dumb things because you can't see the big thing. You can't see it, it's infantile. So in chapter three, Paul is calling the church to grow up. That's what chapter three is. And the rest of the chapter is him going, here is what growing up means. Okay, so are we clear on, on, on what we're doing in, in chapter three? Uh, here's what growing up means. And the first thing is this, growing up 
means being able to see what's most impressive. Being able to see what's most impressive. And newsflash, it's not your leaders. So verse five, he says this, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? So stop right here for a moment. How, how would you answer that question? You're, you get this letter from Paul? Paul saying, hey, who, who am I really? I mean, like, what, what am I to you? I mean, how do you answer that? I mean, this is, this is Paul, guys. This is the apostle Paul. The, the answer is, dude, you're, who is Paul? You're the man, right? You're the you're terrorist turned the greatest missionary in church history. You're the guy who gets whipped and beaten, stoned so bad that you look dead, they drag you out of the city. Then you stand up and you go back in and you preach the gospel again. You're that guy. You're a miracle guy, Paul. Have you guys read Acts chapter 19? This is what Acts 19 says about the apostle Paul. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. You're magic Kleenex guy. You're, 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 I touch your clothes and my arm grows back. That's who you are. That's amazing. Do you know a guy like, you don't know a guy like that. That's an amazing man. What is Paul? You're, you're everything. What's Paul's answer? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. You want to know who I am? I'm a servant with a job given to me by my master. And I'm just here to carry it out. I'm, I'm nothing more than a servant. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You think we're heroes? <laughs> we're not heroes. Can I tell you who? We're the lawn guys. That's, that's what Paul just said. I'm the lawn guy. I, yeah, okay, yes. Uh, I threw seeds on the ground one day. I came to Corinth and I helped start this church. I, I preached the gospel. The seed of the gospel went out. So I did that. That is true. And yes, it is true that Apollos came back behind me and he turned on the sprinklers, right? And got the ground wet. That is, all that's true. That happened. But neither of us invented grass, right? We didn't beckon Bermuda out from the earth. Like we didn't, we don't have that kind of power. I can't invent flowers, I just sprayed the hose. I just threw the seed. But here's the point. You're impressed with the wrong guy. That's what he's saying. You're, you're, you, are, you are fascinated and impressed with the wrong person. This, if your life has been changed by, by somebody's ministry, think about your, just your life. If your marriage has had some restoration happen to it because of a good, maybe biblical counselor or somebody who came in and gave you guys good counsel. If, if you came to Christ because one of your friends had the the courage to open up his or her mouth and share the gospel with you. If that thing happened, those things are beautiful things. But, but what Paul is saying here is that it's the Lord who did it though. Like the, that, that change in you, that repentance in you, that restoration of your marriage, the, the guy or girl on the other end of that conversation didn't do that. It's the Lord who did it. They, they may have been faithful servants, faithful long guys along the way, but they didn't invent and produce in you repentance. Nobody can do that but God. God uses people, but people can't change hearts. Only God does that. So if you want to be impressed with somebody, you be impressed with the one who can actually make flowers grow, and that's God. You don't be impressed with us, because we're just servants here, right? And when we begin to think like this, of who's actually impressive, Paul's saying, 
you're gonna notice jealousies, strife, envy, start to shrink away. Why? Because I know that the remarkable stuff I'm seeing happen in that girl, that guy, that group, that church, it really isn't them. They may be being faithful to their master, but the growth is actually coming from the Lord. So my attention moves from you up to him. And when my attention moves up to him and away from you, things get set right. I don't have to compete anymore. That's what he's saying. This puts things in perspective when we see what's most impressive. You see that? We, we get perspective when we see what's most impressive. What's most impressive to Paul is God, the one who causes the growth. And when we see that, we can now answer another question, which is, so what's most important? I now know what's most impressive. Now I gotta answer the question, therefore, what's most important? If what's most impressive is God, then what's most important is not how remarkable our church leaders are, but how responsible they are with the work God's given them. That's what Paul's gonna say next. So look at verse eight. He says this, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. In other words, hey, there's a good way and a bad way to be a lawn guy. Not everybody's paid equally. Not everybody does the same quality work. That guy is doing something different than that guy, and their wages will be meted out accordingly. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Then he changes the analogy. You are God's building. So Paul, in making his next point, he switches from agriculture, that sort of motif, to architecture. He's saying you're not just God's field. Why don't you think about it more like you being God's building? So now he's going to develop a new argument. Look at verse 10. He says this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Meaning, hey, look, one day I came to your city. Right? And, and I brought the gospel. And, I did, and, and in doing that, I, I laid the slab work. I laid the foundation, right? The thing that everything else is going to be built upon. And now here's what's happening the, the foundation has been built, and you have leadership in your church that's building on this foundation with every sermon they preach, every lesson they give, every teaching or instruction they send out, they are building on the slab I laid down. But it's my slab that started this thing. That's what he says. Let each one of you, therefore, take care how he builds upon it. Look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, Corinthian church, the slab under your feet, that foundation, it is only one thing and it will ever only be one thing, and it is the gospel. Christ crucified and raised for sinners. That is what is at bedrock of this thing we call the church. It is what everything else is being built on. Christ crucified. Let me say it like this. The most important thing in Christianity is and will always be the gospel of Jesus. And I'm using that term interchangeably. When I say uh, Christ crucified, when I'm saying the gospel, if I just say Jesus Christ, I'm talking about the fullness of the person and work of Jesus, living, dying, rising on behalf of sinners like you and me. That's what I'm saying. So just so you know, as, as we switch it out throughout the sermon, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the gospel. And the most important thing, the number one foundation, the only foundation on which everything else is built is Christ crucified. It's in the name, Christianity, right? It's right there. 
You, uh, you will never get over the gospel. We will never grow past the gospel. We will never, as this church, move on from Jesus Christ living, dying, and raising again for sinful people. The, there's the, the gospel is not like the gateway drug to like the, the harder stuff, right? It's like, oh, now we're, now we're into the real thing. We got the gospel, but now we're into like the stuff that matters. It's not like that. You will, uh, it's, not like, uh, it's not like Scientology, right? Where if you stick around long enough, right, you move up the levels and then eventually they tell you, well, hey, did you know that one day 75 million years ago, an alien named Xenu populated this planet with his Confederate army? You're never gonna find that out in Christianity. That's true, by the way. Not that Zeno populated the, but that it's in, never mind. The point is, this is as deep as it gets, right? When you enter, you're getting the deepest stuff. The gospel is, when you're digging down deep in Christianity and you hit bedrock, that stone that you hit, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's at bottom of everything. It is everything. Tim Keller said it best. Uh, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is what? The A to Z of Christianity. It's the whole thing. This news is the answer to every single issue in the Christian life. It's not just the thing that gets you saved. It's not just the key that opens the door to the house. It's the house. It's the front door. It's the back door. It's the decoration on the walls in the room. It's everything. A lot of people just put it at the front of Christianity and say, that's, that's how we came into this thing. And now we'll get to the real meat and potatoes, but that's not what it is. It's the whole thing. The foundation of everything is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our relationship issues, our cultural issues, our addictions, same answer, Christ crucified. So, Paul says, you be careful how you build on that foundation because it's that important. Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, Straw. He's talking about the content that, that teachers maybe bring uh, as they're uh, preaching sermons and teaching and leading people and counseling people and all those things. It, if anyone builds on the foundation with those things, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day is referring to that final day, the final judgment when Jesus Christ returns to set all things right because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So there's a day coming, Paul's saying, where you will find out whether you were wasting everybody's time with silly talk or giving them something valuable. And this has obviously immediate applications for folks like me who are up on a stage or teaching people in some pastoral way. But it, it, this isn't just for pastoral leadership. This is for every Christian. Every time you open your mouth and herald something about Jesus, in the name of Jesus, whatever it is, Paul is saying there's a day coming where all that's gonna be sorted out, where, where we're gonna discover in the end, was that helpful or was that hurtful? Was that obscuring the gospel of Jesus or was that shining the light on the gospel of Jesus. The only thing that will matter in the end is whether you put a spotlight on Jesus Christ or whether you obscured him. That's the only thing that's gonna matter. Did I help people in my life see him and him alone as the only hope or did I shine it over here on some good self-help book, on some new political message I'm into, on, on some uh, prosperity gospel preaching? What, where am I shining the light? Because where you shine it on is like building 
with gold, precious stones, or wood, or hay, or straw. And when the fire comes of testing, it will prove in the end, there will be a day when you'll either see that house light up or you'll see it be tested and stay true and refined. That day is coming though for everyone, leadership and the church, but especially Paul has leaders in mind here. And you go, man, why is this so heavy? Why does Jimmy always get the mean sermons? This is like so (laughs) severe. And I think Paul anticipates that question, not about the Jimmy part, that'd be weird, but he anticipates that because, because of what he says next in verse 16. And his answer is essentially this. Why am I speaking with such like intensity? Why are the stakes so high? Because this isn't just any old building. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul just got super real with us. This is the heaviest handed statement toward pastoral and church leadership in the entire New Testament. If you destroy the temple, God will destroy you. Why? Because the building that I've been talking about, it isn't just a condo. It isn't just like a, 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 a H-E-B, right? That, that's not what I'm talking about. The building I'm talking about is the actual temple where the spirit of the living God dwells and you don't jack with that. You jack with that, God jacks with you because he loves the place where his spirit dwells. He loves it. And so when you're, when you're thinking about uh, this issue, you have to keep in mind that the reason the stakes are so high for Paul is because, because when he looks at the church, he sees through the eyes of the Spirit that, that he's actually looking at the very dwelling place of God, the, the temple of God itself. So let me do a little historical work with you on the temple so we can, us modern ears, we don't, we're not hit the same way when we hear the temple. We're like, yeah, box, and there's a thing, and like, uh, yeah. But no, it was everything. And the, uh, so Old Testament, that here's, the, here's the quickest definition of what a temple is. Um, the temple is the place where man meets God. You wanna know what a temple is? In any religion, really, uh, but especially in uh, the scriptures. It is the place where man and God intersect. It's the place where man meets God. So uh, the first temple in the uh, Bible is what? It's Eden, right? It's where Adam and Eve dwelled with God forever. They sinned, were kicked out, and then the temple uh, becomes uh, the tent of meeting with Moses, and then the tabernacle with Moses as they were roaming around the desert for 40 years, and then eventually in Jerusalem with Solomon, they built a physical sturdy, like with cedar and wood and gold, all that stuff. That temple in Jerusalem was the place, But but the point is this. There was... In the Old Testament, a particular place, a locale, where the manifest presence of God showed up in a unique way that it wasn't in other places. And it was fixed in this temple. If you wanted proximity to God, you got closer to the temple. You got closer to, in Solomon's day, Jerusalem. I had to go to a place. There were three pilgrimages a year where you would, as a Jew, move yourself and your family to Jerusalem to get in proximity to this God. There was something unique that was happening where God and man interacted in a unique way at the temple. Now the New Testament happens and everything kind of gets disrupted because Jesus shows up on the scene. And then John uh, writes in John 1 14 that Jesus, the word became flesh and 
tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. It's the same word from the Old Testament usage of the tabernacle. Moses is ten of me, that, that thing. So Jesus now becomes, in the New Testament, uh, the new locale where man and God interact for the first time. So now it's not a building I go to, but it's a person. It's mobile all of a sudden. And if that wasn't unusual enough, now uh, something even wilder happens when we get to the book of Acts. Because as Jesus dies for his people's sins, rises from the grave, he sends the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God descends on the followers of God, everyone who trusts in Jesus, starting in Acts chapter 2, so that now each individual believer, and then particularly in a unique way as the believers come together, we become the dwelling place of that Spirit. So, so now... Post the book of Acts, what's happening is the, the manifest presence of God in the world where man connects with God is no longer in Jerusalem and it's no longer just in one person. It's in every saint. It's in every person who trusts in Jesus and particularly in the local churches where those saints gather together. Paul is putting eyes on that thing and he's saying that is where the presence of God dwells now. Or to say it a different way, the church is the place now where man out there will meet God. We are the connection point between a lost and dying world and the Savior they need. And that is breathtaking and awesome, and weighty, and exciting, except if that temple looks like trash, right? Because if, what if this place is filled with people who are catty, and jealous, and arrogant, and where the gospel isn't treasured, and where Jesus Christ isn't put on display. Do you see why the stakes are so high? To obscure, to obscure the glory of God for a world that needs to meet him is an awful thing. So if you have leadership that comes in and points the spotlight on anything other than Jesus, anything other than the one thing that can actually change you to be a bright beacon of light for the presence of God to interact with the world, you see, that's not anything to play around with. You destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. That's how serious God is about this thing. Or let me say it positively. Good churches really matter. Good preaching really matters. Good leadership really matters. Good teaching produces healthy, happy, humble Christians, who when we come together, we display God to the world. We're the interaction point of the world to God, your neighbor, your lost friend, your mom or dad, that coworker. We're the place now. And so it really matters that this thing is healthy and that your church leadership is doing the best job they can at shining the spotlight on the Lord Jesus. And let me just tell you, I don't know about you, but I want us to do a great job of that here at Stonegate. I want to do a great job of that. We don't want to build with straw here or hay or just have silly little moments all the time. Stuff that's just in the end on the day just going to burn. We don't want that. We don't want to give you just good self-help techniques. There's a, let me just tell you, there's a billion churches out there that are doing that all day. 
And if you're into that, you can go find them, but you're not gonna find it here. It's gonna be disappointing to you if that's what you're looking for here. We, we could do that, and that would probably grow our numbers more, but it would kill our witness, and we don't want that. We want Christ crucified and raised for sinners every week, week in and week out. That's what we do here. And if you get tired of that, you're going to be really tired of this church. And by the way, you're going to be really tired of the Bible. Have you read the Bible? It's like kind of the thing in the Bible. That's what it's about. So we take it seriously. So, so let's recap. So what's most important to Paul? Christ crucified. That should be the goal of every player on the team shining the light on, on Christ crucified. What's most impressive to Paul? God himself. We're just players on his team, right? And when we start to realize all this, that we're playing for the same team, that we're aiming at the same goal, something remarkable happens in us, church. Our childish, myopic, nearsightedness starts to go away. It starts to leave us. Why? Because I begin to discover that when you win, I actually win too. Because we're on the same team. We're aiming for the same goal. I don't actually have to compete with you anymore. That's what Paul ends with in verse 21. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. When we realize that it's all about Jesus, and that I'm in Jesus, then every win for Jesus is, wait for it, a win for me. It's a win for me. I, I'll tell you, I was confronted with this in myself uh, early on in my 20s when I was doing the touring thing on the road. Man, I just I so was dealing with this kind of monster inside me of, of competitiveness and, and wanting to do the one-upsman thing. And, you know, I would, I would be traveling and I, I'd have a friend that, you know, one of his singles would take off and he would just be top of the charts and just doing all, all these great things. And, and I'm sort of kind of humming along down here. And I just remember all the time just feeling this thing rise up in me of like, ah, how come not me? How come him? I angry, right? Just, I just got so babyish, you know? I just so whiny about the whole thing. But do you see? Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul's saying, it is you. It, 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 their win is your win because you're playing for the same team. The goal is still the same. So if they score, you score. It, everybody wins here. His platform growing means that more people get to hear about the gospel of Jesus through him. And isn't that what you want, Jimmy? And what I began to discover was, oh, in my immaturity, oh, that's actually not what I wanted. No, I, I actually, I didn't want the W if it meant I didn't get to make the play, right? It's Terrell Owens, T.O., Right? We remember him from uh, uh, Cowboys days, right? Amazing wide receiver, only happy when he has the ball, right? So, so even when, when his team wins, you'd watch him in interviews and be all feisty and fussy. Why? Because I didn't get to score the touchdown. It's like, dude, no, no, no. Like a touchdown for them is, it's a touchdown for you too, bro. Everybody wins here. You still get the ring. It's all good, right? But we miss that. And, and Jesus is saying through Paul, hey, when I win, the church wins. And if the church wins, you win. So, so that touchdown for that girl is a touchdown for you. We can all celebrate together. And, and, and here's the, the, the beautiful thing. We don't have to be petty anymore. 
We don't have to be childish or, or c- competitive with each other. In fact, we can do something that almost is never seen in our culture. We get to start rooting for one another. And man, isn't that, isn't that a beautiful thing when you can root for another person? I'll, I'll uh, uh, end by telling you this story. So this was uh, just such a great example of it um, for me when I was younger. Uh, I was at A&M in college. I went to school for um, history and philosophy. I don't know. I hate making money. And, uh, <laughs> and I was in school... And, um, but I also was writing songs. So I started playing shows and I had a, a buddy in school. He was a grade above me at A&M and he was playing shows. He had a band. He kind of had some good mojo working there at, at College Station. And so he asked me to start opening for him at coffee houses. And I did, I started opening for him. I play my little songs, you know, a few songs and people would like it. It was great. And, and me, his name was Cody. And we, we did this uh, together for, you know, a couple years there at, at the beginning. And then one day I got a phone call from the president of a record label in Nashville saying he heard my music on MySpace. <laughs> I'm 100 years old. And, and uh, wanted to fly down to, to Texas to talk about signing me. I, I was just, my mind was blown. I was like, wait, this thing that I love, that I get to do, like I'm writing songs for Jesus and you, you wanna like put me on your label and put, like, put me out there to the world? That's, are you serious? That's amazing. And I remember I was just <laughs> losing my mind over this. And I, I, I came onto campus that day and I bump into Cody on campus. And I look at him and I know, I mean, we've, we're both doing the same thing. He's wanted to have a career, all this. And I look at him and I'm like, dude, I just got a phone call from record label. I think I'm going to be a recording artist. Isn't this amazing? And you know what he said? That is amazing. Dude, are you kidding me? I was like, no, I'm not. Why would I kid about this? He's like, no, that's amazing. And we just danced like little girls on the uh, campus. It was so great. But let me tell you, as I reflect on that whole moment, I I recognize something. It didn't have to go down like that. It it could have very well gone like this. Dude, I just got a record deal. Can you believe it? It's amazing. Dude, I made you. If it wasn't for me, you, you wouldn't have even had a show. And now you get, what is that? How how dare you? But it wasn't like that. Cody had what I'm so eager for us to have, a a bigger view of the world than that, a bigger view of what God is doing. He reckoned, he could see, even at 19, 20 years old, that God was doing something here and that if it meant that the gospel was going out to more people through me, praise God, that's a win for me too. And so I'm going to delight with you. I'm going to celebrate with you. I don't have to be catty and fighting with you. I get to to boast in the same thing you're boasting in because I know a win for you is a win for me. All things are yours in Christ. Whether Paul or Apollos or life or death, everything's yours because you're in Christ and Christ is in God and Christ is victorious, which means you're victorious no matter how that victory is playing out in the world. And so that frees us up to live free to rejoice with others, to not be so self-centered and nearsighted. We get to open up our world and bless people. We're standing on the rock of Christ, Christ crucified. He's our only hope. And we're recognizing that God in his kindness is working out his victory through so many people in the world and we get to boast in them as well. That's really good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, there is one foundation that we can stand on, and it is your son, Jesus. The slab under our feet, he is our everything. And God, in, in, for the ways that we have 
um, added onto that foundation unhelpfully, God chasing us and help us because we always want to be this kind of people. The spotlight's right on him. We want, we want the world to boast in Jesus only. And may all of us, we want all, all of us here to be able to just say, I'm just a servant of him. So whatever good is happening in me, it's, it's him who's causing the growth. It's him who's doing the work. Look to him. God, we do. We want to look to our Savior. And even as we sing the song, as we're thinking about Christ being the, the rock on which we stand, Lord, we pray that in the ways that we haven't done that, that even singing these words would be an act of repentance for us, that we could repent through worship right now, that, that uh, we don't want to be competitive like that anymore. We want to be free from that so we can just delight in you. So God, help us, we pray. Help us do that. In Jesus' name.